His older friends know him as DQ, but Dan Quigley has deeply evolved from his tagging days of two-letter graffiti. I met him three years ago where he was working at the Duane Street location of the Armory. However, you will now find him managing the newest location uptown on Madison Avenue. We talk about Dan's youth in what was a crime-ridden Brooklyn, creating art while his father was trying to stop it, though not Dan's, he was actually proud of Dan's. We get into some music chat by way of his experience playing bass and the bands he'll always love. And of course we talk about what brought us together as friends, which is our mutual appreciation for the retail industry. We dip a toe into Dan's relationship with depression, and how he's manifested a grateful life full of optimism, love, and compassion. My words, not his, because this is how I see and know Dan. And also the wonderful second coming of his art career, because it's far outstretched the characterization of quote-unquote hobby. I absolutely love what he's doing. In fact, I recently purchased my first piece from him, and I can't wait to receive it. This one was an absolute pleasure. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. So good to see you. Um, I'm glad I got the chance to see you um, in New York, obviously, at the studio. Um, That was super exciting. But I really want to start things off when you were a a wee chap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What was uh what was your favorite thing to do as a kid? Oh man, it depends on the age. Okay. So most of my childhood memories are a few things. I had a couple of nicknames. One of them was wheels, i.e., I was either on a skateboard, a bike, or rollerblading. Well, roller skates, pre-rollerblades. Right. Played a lot of hockey. Um so those are great memories. Um, I did some boxing then. Those were not the best memories, but confidence building memories. Um, oh, interesting. Is that because you were knocking people out or what? <laughs> no, it's just, you know, you're dealing with a lot of demons um, working through it. So it was helpful in that way. Yeah. And what other than that, I mean, really art and, uh, music like i've always been in bands um up until like my you know a couple years after high school into college but then the first initial interest in my life that held on to me for a long time and really uh, i guess you know made me captivated was art so painting graffiti was a big part of my upbringing so graffiti was probably you know that's i was called dq everyone knew uh, still to this day i have friends that i I don't think they know my name like (laughs) from like 30 40 years ago oh that's so funny i don't think like they do but like it probably took until a wedding invite for them to understand oh dq is dan quigley with a handful of them um so i was dq forever uh, so, so that was kind of a big part of my identity then. And it was, um, you know, when you talk about memory, that's, yeah, that's filled up a lot of my, my, my memory because I would cut out of school to write graffiti. I would go, not go to sleep <laughs> to go write graffiti. You know, we wake up at 11 o'clock, jump on a bus as like 13, 14 year old kids and go all the way down Avenue U and walk back and just kind of 
go bombing, which was crazy. You know, I think about it now, I'm like, I hate that kid. But yeah, that was a lot of my life. Wow. So what kinds of things were you doing graffiti with? Like, or I mean, like what, what were you actually tagging or painting? Yeah. So it was, it's a bit of both. So there's tags, throw ups and pieces at the time. There's probably a whole new lingo that I don't, I'm totally out, out of, I mean, uh, but we would throw up tags. So like I was DQ, my other people with sense, SA, Sega, Mess, Wiz, all the, all of our friends would have tags. So it was kind of more like um, expression of a crew as a team. So NSK was New Style King. So our crew would go out and do our thing. So that was that was not so much art other than just creating your own tag, like your own way you wrote it. But then you go pieces a little bit bigger and bigger. And then I love the color of big pieces. So we that all starts in the book that all starts sketching so that's really where the creative and the art and the, when i think about graffiti i don't think so much about my going out tagging but the creating pieces on paper that ended up on bigger walls that was really really what drove me then well that's interesting because like when I think of tagging, it's obviously like an exercise in font creation almost, you know, like yeah. you know, different stylized fonts. And I just, I would imagine there are people out there who design fonts and that sort of thing, graphic artists, typography, right? So I wonder, did any of your friends um, like go into that field, like that level of design, like taking it from, you know, the brick wall to the, to the computer, so to speak. It's funny. Um, the guys I just thought of and mentioned, um, no, none of them. I mean, they're all artists in their own way. Right. Sure. Like, um, my friend Wiz is my friend, Billy Durney, who you know, I'm friends with this guy, I don't know, 30 plus years. And he wrote Wiz. But and he, but he's a creative spirit. Now he's a restaurant king. You know, he's the barbecue king of Brooklyn. He's the Babe Ruth of uh, restaurants. You know, he so he put his creativity, his interest, and his attention to detail into what he does, but not font creating. And I, my other friend Craig, became an actor. So creatives, you know, right? Just a different outlet. Yeah, yeah. I think I think at the time. You know, you don't think about it as a career path. You know, you don't you don't get into conversations with people that say, "That's cool, you should do that." Right, right, right. It was more like you should not do that. Like right. that's what happened to me. <laughs> um, that's exactly what happened to me. I um, when I was in high school, after my parents moved me out of Brooklyn because I was kind of a troubled kid, getting into it you know, bad crowds doing graffiti, you know, sure. but I also was always drawing and painting and sketching other stuff, but I was in trouble for graffiti. I moved out to New Jersey. I got into the art class. I was stoked about the art class. It was some cool art in there. And I was doing my thing and doing pieces and more details. And, you know, my art teacher basically said, no, that's not art. You know, I was like, what? my mind was blown. I was like, that's not art, dude. What are you doing? You're standing here teaching. What do you, you should know art is something imponderable. You can't even teach it. Right. But 
I wasn't speaking the same language as him. And we were obviously in different tribes and different ways of looking at art. You know, art was for me just something magical. For him, it was maybe a career, maybe something to sell. I I didn't think about it that way at all. Right. I stopped. I basically stopped because of a guy like that. So to to answer your question, Wes, um, you know, not a lot of people in my generation took their graffiti lives and moved on and celebrated. There are some great, obviously, artists out there now that did come from my generation. Local guy, Caves, over here in Bay Ridge. He's doing great art. He's, but not a lot of guys made it through that. Interesting. So you said your parents moved you out of Brooklyn. Uh, was that motivation because you were getting in trouble? Or did like what did your parents do for work? Well, you know, the definitely 100% was to get me out of... Uh, Brooklyn out of, out of trouble, you know, not, not to say I was a troubled kid, but it was more or less, I was a product of my environment and the people around me. You know, if you look back at Brooklyn in 1989 and you look at the crime statistics compared to now, you know, I know things are bad now, but (laughs) there was really no comparison. It was, um, absolutely a tough place to grow up. Um, so they wanted me keep me out of danger you know you definitely if you were born in brooklyn 1971 and you lived through 1989 in brooklyn yeah you're lucky you know most people either moved out earlier much earlier or you know got caught up in the system somehow um as far as you know so they moved me out for that but yeah my, my dad was in his you know his years leaning up leading up to his retirement and he worked for the New York Metropolitan uh, Transit, the MTA. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he ran a department called Gauge Maintenance, which, ironically enough, under that umbrella uh, was graffiti uh, solving <laughs> problems for graffiti in the uh, transit system. Right, people tagging the subways. Right. I mean, he actually, I remember him traveling to Belgium and um france about their transit systems and how they were keeping them clean to what kind of learn systems and he actually helped implement a a total graffiti anti-graffiti task force which ironically enough i was his son out there doing graffiti wow he was actually proud of my art i remember seeing a photograph of him (laughs) next to a piece of mine that i did in the train in the train what we call the tracks uh, and I remember him seeing a photo of him that his friend Jack, his best friend, took a photo of him. I could remember every detail about that photo. Uh, you know, he had a mustache at the time. And, you know, I remember him proud of my art at the time. But still, you know, every, everything in life is a juxtaposition. And there he is trying to stop graffiti, you know, the tag. And I think he really liked the art, but he didn't like the I guess maybe it was more or less his job and he just wanted to do do a good job. But yeah, anyway, so that's what he did. Um, my mom, she, you know, she had a bunch of jobs uh, as I was growing up. She managed restaurants. She worked in Macy's. She's selling fragrances. Um, but mostly she was just a great mom and there for the kids. Yeah. Well, it's funny, I guess your art sort of kept your dad employed, uh, or at least that division <laughs> running, which is kind of funny. But, um, but so the, the, well, the interesting thing too is, is like my understanding is that what would happen is 
the subways would end up on one end of the tracks and they'd just have like a cleaning crew, right? Like they would have to like, what is it like? I don't know, some acid solution or whatever, water, scrubs and brushes. Right. It's, um, well, they have, well, they never had, so in Coney Island, Brooklyn, where my dad worked, uh, is the end of the train tracks uh, for all the, a lot of train lines end out that way that come like start up in Queens, come through Manhattan and, or start up in the Bronx and come through Manhattan and land in the far end of Brooklyn. That's where my dad worked. And there they set up these kind of look like giant tents that would, you know, you could work in those tents day or night cleaning the trains. Now they're, you know, metal structures, but back then it was just create an area, a place and get a team in, 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 in place to get the thing, get every, don't let a train start its next day dirty because they, what they wanted to do was cat, you know, catch it early because sure. the, the idea at the time was, this is under like when Ru- Rudy Giuliani was mayor was to, you know, graffiti led to worse crimes. That is how they saw it, which in a very, there, there is some sense to that, but not always. Right. Right. Yeah, I my understanding was that Giuliani was was very much a part of cleaning up New York, so to speak. Yeah, it's true. It's true. He was great then. He was a great man. Um, then. <laughs> no, understood. Understood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So my dad was part of that team to kind of get the uh, the transit system clean, and it, it worked. It worked. That's cool. So, well, all right. So, I know you play guitar, but for some reason in my brain, I feel like you used to be a bassist. Is that right? Or, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. I, you know, it's like when you're not the greatest guitar player in the neighborhood, <laughs> you, you end up being uh, the, the bassist for the band. All of us wanted to, you know, none of us picked up a musical instrument to say, I want to be the bass player. You know, you, you, you want to be Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix or something. Right. Uh, right. So we all did, but I didn't have the skill set on the guitar. So, you know, I, I pretty much throughout you know, every band I've ever played in was bass guitar. So I'm a fair bass player and less good guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting because like when you, when you're almost like relegated, right. To, to the bass and no shots fired at bassists out there who, who aspire to be bassists. <laughs> but, yeah. but I'm saying like, with regards to playing bass and knowing that's your role in a specific band, did you start to listen to the bassists of other bands more or like, you know what I mean? Like try to emulate other bassists at that yeah, point? Yeah, what happens then? Yeah, when you when you end up being the bass player of the band, then you start, at my age, I seeked out, who's the bass player from Black Sabbath? Who's the bass player from, you know? And you start finding these amazing bass players and like, holy shit, shit. These guys are crazy good and yeah. you know they're doing amazing things in the, in that base that you didn't even notice until now that you're listening and now like honestly i mean i love guitar i still love guitar driven or string like guitar and bass driven music mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh now if i hear a cool ba- i don't follow any guitarists on instagram i follow a handful of bass players well because like i think of i think of like crazy bassists i think of like les claypool and victor wooten and people like that you know and flea and you know oh yeah sure yeah flea yeah i mean there, there's so many but 
But for me back then, it was like Steve Harris from you know Iron Maiden. This dude was mm-hmm. crushing it, and I and I was always into punk. So just I just want to keep a fast, hard pace going. That's all, all I wanted to do. Some cool rhythm, you know. You know what's funny? When I was uh, I got into punk in high school, and like. And as you get into college and sort of uh, still in that punk, like punk sort of becomes pop punk at that, you know, at that level where you're like right. the, the no effects is of the world, which are like teetering yeah. between punk and pop punk, um, kind of almost like a transitional era, I would call it. Um, yeah. But like, I remember being in high school, listening to no effects and like my buddy, Zach, who now lives in Japan, he's like a brilliant dude, great guitarist. Right. Uh, good drummer for that fa- for that matter but um so zach was like you know listen to this bass and like all i could hear was guitar and drums and it was just so weird he's like no but what you're actually hearing a lot of is the bass that's a bass guitar that isn't just the guitar and it blew my mind power chords with a little distortion can <laughs> change the tune and you sound like it's a guitar yeah yeah it was kind of crazy all right so you mentioned sabbath you mentioned, uh, you know, bass guitar. What were the bands in high school that were like some of the favorites? Man, they st- and they remain. It's amazing. Like you, you, you get into music at a certain age. Usually, you're adolescent. Well, two two ages in your life. You know, when you're a child, what you hear, your parents listen your parents, to, yeah. and then, and then what you listen to as a high school student. You know, your adolescence, um, in your teen years, it's. It's for me. I was listening to older stuff than the guys. So my high school years would like the Seattle sound just came in, right? Mm-hmm. Came in hard. So there was the Alice in Chains and the Nirvana's and the Pearl Gems and yeah, those amazing bands. But I was so uh, East Coast. I didn't want to hear it. <laughs> I didn't want to hear it. I was still listening to bands like Life of Agony, Biohazard. Typo negative, carnivore, yeah. you know, like East Coast, dog eat dog. To me, like those bands are unsung and like they they were just to me crushing it. And I went to all those shows, I played shows with all those guys, and they were phenomenal. And I still to this day love that. But I love the death tones. I love the I did like the death tones. I like offspring, you know, like it was a lot of that stuff in me. Punk core in a way. Yeah, none of these guys should be classified. I know I hate you know, this one thing. I, I don't like defining things too much because once you get too academic about it, you're losing the magic of it. Right. But these bands, they put it, you know, going to a show and seeing the, the energy was what I was driven by. So I loved live music at the time. But my rooted stuff, the stuff that got me into music was really like Pink Floyd. Mm. You know, I loved, loved, loved Pink Floyd. It was just an amazing band. I loved Rush. I loved uh, Zeppelin was my problem. I don't know. Zeppelin, if you ask me, hey, here you go, here you go. I, I, I think this is the best way to answer it. Zeppelin, ACDC, Pink Floyd were probably my three favorite bands. Man, so, and it's so funny because, like, they're all such iconic bands, but in such different ways. Like, their sound, it, like, you know, ACDC's right in your face, straightforward 4-4 four, four rhythms, that kind of thing. Right. Um, I mean, you could argue that the drummer played maybe one, two drum beats, perhaps, across all albums. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. 
but then you've got you know John Bonham, right? And then and then you've got that sort of space age, sort of trippy Pink Floyd vibe. Dude, Pink Floyd. I I feel like every time I hear it to this day, I'm getting an education on the mysteries of the world. Right. It takes you to a different place. Yeah, it's you know I like to I like to remind people and I re- be reminded that you know we're just souls having mm-hmm. a human experience, and this time goes by fucking fast. Mm-hmm. You know, so cherish every moment. You know, as if it's your last. And like I don't think you know for me I need dreamy stuff to happen in my brain via the senses, i.e., the eyes and the ears. You know, like I need something kind of to remind me of that. Otherwise, you know, you could get severely depressed of uh, the here and now that doesn't that you can't even see because you're thinking about something in the future or the past. So for me, right. Pink Floyd, like taught me all that. So it's it, it basically stands as some version of escapism for you. Or connecting to something greater. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Escape. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, escape pains, but given perspective to it. So, okay, you've mentioned some demons, you've mentioned some pains. Is it cool if we if we breach this subject a little further? Like, what is is there anything in particular that that you ruminate over time and again? Um. Yeah, I mean, the, I that, yeah, what I it, it's less ruminate over than perspective on um Mm. i spent a tremendous amount of my life um younger years and it's been a long time really depressed Mm -hmm. you know and i mentioned my the environment in brooklyn at the time i grew up was very violent and a little scary sure so as a kid that sticks with you but and i you know i spent you know i i you know, to those closest to know to me, know that I probably spent, I don't know, seven, eight years suicidal, you know, just like really wanted to just end it mm. because the world seemed really dark to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like, yeah, so that's a real thing. But now, as a 50 year old man, it's very different. Yeah. You know, I wake up and I'm grateful every morning you know i i'm blessed i count all my blessings i have everything i need well i know you're a a father but was there a different light switch or was it becoming a dad that sort of changed that flipped the switch first switch was flipped in probably in high school when i was still depressed Mm -hmm. but it was something that gave me a light I remember sitting in front of like a Rothko painting when I was cutting out of school because I was terrified to go to school because people were going to jump, especially kids like me that were in bands. Uh, and the Guidos, <laughs> my neighborhood that I went to high school, hated me. So I would cut out of school and go to museums. So the first switch that was flipped was sitting in front of a Rothko painting and knowing I wasn't the only one who's ever experienced pain. And I loved that that was able communicated to me through color, through, you know, just scale. And that was the first, absolute first switch. And that kind of, I think that's what pulled me through, knowing I wasn't alone. 
And then more switches as I started developing tools got me out of depression. The mm -hmm. biggest switch in my life was, you know, transcendental meditation, which I do every day, twice a day for, I don't know, 15 years now. Amazing. Uh, if I don't do that, I am a different person. Yeah. You know, so that, that was probably one of the biggest switches. How did you get into TM? Did you have uh, somebody give you um... oh, a mantra? Yeah. Did you have somebody give you your mantra or because I know that can happen, right? Yeah. That, well, that's exactly what happens. You Well, I did it through the Transcendental Meditation Organization, which okay. is like a weekend in the city, you know, and for a few hours and on a Saturday and a Sunday. And you, you go about the training process of how to meditate. And, you, you know, basically it's the easiest thing in the world. Just do it. Right. Um, and repeat this mantra internally. Um I use some visualization with mine and I kind of hold, and the mantra means nothing or it shouldn't mean nothing to you. You should have zero attachment to it. I see. Uh, when people saw reset, that's why people keep them Most TM, well, all TM students or practitioners keep their mantra to themselves mm -hmm. because giving it away gives it away its power a little bit. Mm. But my mantra me means nothing to me other than it's a tool for me to kind of get into a meditative place. Uh, and that meditative place has a calmative effect over the years, like washing away the sand of stress and desire and stuff that kind of doesn't feed my higher self. So TM has definitely done it. But what led me to TM, Leslie, I don't know. I would say... You know, I, I, I've always looked for tools, whether it be, uh, I've tried psychedelics, uh, they've, they've helped. Uh, I have, um, I read a lot of Dr. Wayne Dyer. I've read a lot of Deepak Chopra. I've read a doctor. I've read a Be Here Now and Be Here Now from Ram Das has kind of been a through sure. line for me. Yeah. A bunch of Alan Watts. You know, um, God, I could, I can give you a hundred names, but yeah, that's the stuff that kind of got me through it. Those books kind of led me to understanding that there's something more than my stress. That's cool. So do you do TM in the morning pre predominantly or is it later? Or... Yeah, I, I, I'm ritual. I'm a ritual person. Um, I wake up before I get out of bed. I feel grateful about my life. And then I turn on the coffee and get back in bed. And then... Uh, I meditate for 20 minutes and then I, you know, my, my, my day is pretty ritualistic after that until, uh, when I get out of work, um, get on the bus and I meditate on the way home. And then that's, if I don't get one of those at those times, I'll find another way to get them in at a different time of the day. If I don't get a couple in a row, if I don't get in a couple in a row, I'm kind of like, Oh, I got to reset. And I, and, and I've, make sure I get it in the next day. Right. And that's pretty much my routine with meditation. Yeah. Gotcha. That's cool, man. That's, that's, yeah. that's really cool. I'm, I kind of work backwards. I, I meditate at night to kind of calm my brain so that I can sleep. Yeah. That's um, absolutely great. Yeah. So you ride the bus to work. Yeah. Yeah. Being out here in Brooklyn and Bay Ridge and over near the water, there's not a lot of options. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend, Tim Jackson. 
As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O. Or visit them at Contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. Well, we'll get to the work stuff because I'm curious, what was your first job? Uh, that I could remember was painting the bottom of boats. Isn't it really? ironic? Now that, yeah, now that you mention it, it's pretty ironic. Uh, yeah, so there was a boat yard down a block from my house where I grew up, and my first job was painting the bottom of boats blue, which was like an Eve's Klein blue, maybe a little deeper blue, marine blue, I guess they call it, uh, to protect it from barnacles and rot. So yeah, and it was totally like a mobster place. I remember we found, and this is no one believes the shit, but we found like a bag of money. <laughs> like we didn't want anything to do with it in the bottom of a boat no in 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 this yard someone tossed a bag of money over there i was like i don't i I don't really want anything yeah that's dirty that's dirty yeah and and all the guys there were like i'm not you know i i things i probably shouldn't have mentioned (laughs) right 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 so i would not take that money (laughs) let's put it that way so what would be what would you characterize as sort of being like your first job that like kind of would be associated with the word career was that always retail or no i'm still working on a career man <laughs> i love it yeah i you know the most interesting people i know have no idea what they want to do now and they're doing some interesting stuff you know like they're, they're just open to new things but me it's been retail for a long time but i love i love what i do i work for probably for what i do i think i i managed to personally i'm sorry you know i i love my whole industry but i i really think i manage the best shop menswear shop in the world and you know i think i have the best team in the world and i think i have the best clients in the world and i think i have the best boss in the world it's like i'm very very blessed with career but what started me down that path man i tell you i was working security for as they were building the etro store in madison avenue and you know, as they were building it, making sure no one steals anything. And, uh, 
Next thing, next thing I know, the Yetro family hired me to work sales, and I've been doing that for twenty odd years. You know, between Etro and Tom Ford and Laura Piana, Berluti, Caruso, and now the Armory for almost five years. And but you know, it's when you have that kind of trajectory, it's either you go with a brand that's all about it, like my boss is Mark, or you kind of just Go, move on to a different career because there's no this is for me this is the perfect job that's incredible man and i mean i i know this sounds insane to some possibly listening but when you were just talking about your experience at the armory and your team and your boss and like everything like it literally almost brought a tear to my eye just because i love retail so much like yeah. and, and i know that just sounds insane but like it makes me so happy to hear you say that. And just me knowing you as we've become, you know, friends over the last couple of years, like, man, that that's powerful stuff. Yeah. I mean, I am blessed. I mean, I really am blessed. I mean, what we sell things that are not needed, but we sell right. things that people want and they want them for a certain reason. They want it right. for the craftsmanship. They want it for the story. They want it for the passion. We're not trying to rob anyone and throw up a 10x price on things. Yeah. We're offering a great product, a great service at a good price, you know, and we care about our clients and we care about the product. So, you know, it's, it's all from Alan and Mark. It's, it starts with them and, you know, it's a passion project for them. And, uh, you know, anyone that works for the company is pretty lucky, you know, it's, there's a lot of shitty jobs out there and yeah. shitty bosses, you know, Mark happens to be, you know, I've had a lot and I've been a few. Mark happens to be a pretty great guy, you know? That's amazing, man. Um, yeah, I've talked to Mark briefly about getting him on the show. I'm dying for that to happen. Um, I'm optimistic that it will happen. It's just more of a timing issue. But, uh, yeah, you know, paths crossing and stuff. We've been ships in the night in New York constantly. Uh, <laughs> I know, just recently, too, on both yeah. coasts. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that you know, people buy things for different reasons. And, you know, like you, I'm really big into the craftsmanship and the story. And then also just the quality of the materials and and, the, and then the history of like where those materials come from. And, and, you know, all the rest of that, the provenance of that garment, so to speak, um, or shoe or, or, or watch or whatever it is. But, you know, and I think as you've explained your career working under mark and working for the the armory i think you know these are emotional goods you know like you said we don't need these things we want these things and i think you know during my time at gucci as as one of the managers i i used to sort of train my staff with the following mentality which it's almost sort of i mean it's it's really great and it's also bad in the same breath but it was these are emotional goods, right? Like these are emotional products. Nobody needs this stuff. So rather than trying to sell them this product as to why they need it, you really need to approach it from the perspective of why they shouldn't live their life without it. <laughs> and that's a totally different approach, right? And like as a manager, like this is the message we wanted to convey in the house of Gucci. Now, did Gucci tell me to say that? No. But it is sort of like how you can get others to wrap their heads around stories they didn't already know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you have, you have to remember any of these brands, they come from a creative force, right? They mm. come from, and just like all creative forces, right? Um, like all designers, like uh, uh, Ralph Lauren is a designer, right? He create, he lived, he, creating a dream same mm -hmm. thing with uh, our band writing a song you know metallica sitting in the studio putting their best forces forward together as a team to create the best music they can or an artist sitting in the studio painting and leading just trying to impute into the world their internal thing it's all these brands are derived from a creative force and it's important to remember that totally I don't think anybody does it better than Ralph, you know, just starting in the back of his car, you know, I mean, he just like, he created this dream world, right? And now he's, you know, just, just yeah. and, and to this day, even in a magazine ad, you look at his ad, and you are in a different world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why sometimes you walk down the street, it looks like you're in a damn Ralph Lauren commercial. Everyone's dressed exactly <laughs> like the catalog. And to me, it's kind of hit like it, he's great and, and it's great. But the people that wear this head to toe, it drives me crazy. That's not yeah. how you live your life, you know, and that's not what he wants for you. Well, maybe he does. Well, I've heard I've heard interviews with with uh, with Tom Ford and he said exactly that. He's like, I present these shows on a runway. But when I see somebody walking down a sidewalk wearing my stuff head to toe, exactly how it was presented, it drives me crazy. All it does is just tell me that they have no imagination and no style. Right, right. I mean, I worked with Tom. I was one of the first employees at, uh, when he launched his menswear line in his shop on Madison and 70th in 2007. Yeah. And I was with him, I guess, to 2011. And yeah, absolutely. That man himself does not wear Tom Ford head to toe. You know, he might buy his shirt at Turnbull and Asser for an event. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, the, it's something that, like, none of these people wear head to toe. You know, they, it, it's, it, he'll wear a t shirt and jeans. He, he hardly has t shirts and jeans in the collection. Right. You know, you have to, it, it's, it's true. What do you what do you remember most about working for Tom aside from those functions? Um, one of my best friends who to this day is someone I met at Tom Ford. So it's the relationships you take out of the, mm -hmm. out of the place. It's the relationships. But I mean Tom Ford was a Virgo perfectionist, incredible taste level. I mean like you definitely will elevate your taste level just being in the proximity of him. Yeah. So I think that's important. I, and quality and craftsmanship at, the, at a super high level. Of course, they charge for it. Yeah. But I mean, luxury is what I learned with him. I remember traveling to uh, Qatar on a first class ticket <laughs> to serve the Emir of Qatar because of Tom Ford. So I under, I learned wow. about luxury. I learned about luxury. Uh, flying to Paris for a client. Like that wasn't happening anywhere else I worked. Wow. So I learned about real ultra high net worth individuals. And, you know, their expectations, their demands, and their wants are, you know, are all the same. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, that's incredible. That's, that's super cool. Yeah. Well, how did you land at the armory? But I also know you have an L.A. number. So you lived in L.A. at one time, no? Yeah, yeah. I did live in L.A. Um, I keep that number because, you know, it, 
when I call people, it says Beverly Hills, and they pick up. <laughs> I think they're going to make a deal. But um, no, and that's the truth. I do keep that number for that reason that people answer my call. Um, I was in, in L.A. because I helped open up the Etcher the store in Rodeo Drive. Got it. Uh, so I was out there for that. And that's actually, I moved out there with a girlfriend at the time. She was an actress. That didn't work out. And I left there with my current wife. <laughs> oh, you guys met in California. Yeah, we met in California. Yeah. Oh, but So that's why I have the LA number. And we moved back a couple years later after working for Laura Piana mm. uh, for a little while. I was custom clothing manager. Um, I was... I oh, 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 I'm sorry. I, I was going to go to uh, Tom Ford. No, how I ended up at the Army. Man through i was recruited really i didn't know anything about the armory am i my you know you you walk through life with a golf ball sized um observation sometimes i did not know about the armory mm -hmm. um but i started researching it I, so someone called me and said hey these guys are looking for someone i was like oh that's interesting it just sounds like something totally different I've ever done before and um, I remember popping in the store down on Duane Street in Tribeca and right. didn't really know it and I was like I might have some skill sets that could help this company and this company is definitely hitting all my buttons of you know I liked that it was a small company I liked that it uh, was doing something integral um, and I thought it was incredibly tastefully done. So I was recruited. I scoped out the shop and I was like, mm, okay, let's interview. And I, pro I I don't know how I got the job with my interview I, because I was like, <laughs> I was kind of a, probably annoying to them, but I got the job, thank God. Uh, and I took it. Uh, so I was recruited, you know, with my experience selling and yeah. So who 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 reached out to you first? Was it it wasn't Mark, was it? No, Mark. I don't think knew who I was. Um, I have a funny story there. Can you can you share it? Yeah, let's tell <laughs> that funny story real quick. Yeah, let's hear it. So you know, I'm I was uptown on Madison Avenue for twenty years, right? Yeah. Tribeca and the the you know small menswear scene. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew fashion houses. It's, and whatnot um and stupid business like crazy crazy numbers and that was getting old uh anyway so i went to a, i was invited to a party at nat sherman cigars by michael herklock he invited me down to this party he was having um with uh i went with my friend michael who, who you know mike marshall my butt my bud yeah um, and you know, there's a couple photographs, and this is the same time I was interviewing for the Armory. There's a couple photographs that I saw months later of Mark in the background. So we were at the same small party, and we didn't meet each other. But I was interviewing for his company, and then you know, during that time period, I was like, "Wow, he oh, was hilarious." We never met each other, and I was interviewing with um, Bailey and Jim over at the Armory. Right. And then I did meet Mark. And I got the gig, but then it wasn't two months later that I saw those photos. Like that was exactly the same time I was interviewing, but we didn't catch each other in the same room. So anyway. Oh, that's awesome. 
worlds collided there. Yeah, it's like laws of attraction. I love it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. So you joined the Armory. You were working on Duane Street, which is where we met, um, I don't even know, three years ago, two years ago? I, I don't even remember. I think um, it's three now because like we lost about of COVID. 18 yeah. months of COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but you're uptown now. You're on Madison, back in the neighborhood of all these huge fashion houses. Uh, actually, in the old Gucci store. Um, yeah. <laughs> across from the old Tom and, Ford and across store. from the old Tom Ford store. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, wh- how's uptown different from downtown? Mm. It's in so many ways. Um, A lot of our clients uptown are not dialed into Instagram or, you know, the the scene of menswear. They happen to be living in the neighborhood and they appreciate fine clothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So they'll walk past uh, different brands in the neighborhood that have good clothing. And then they'll walk an outdoor or we'll we'll know them or uh, someone will recommend them. But they don't always come via social media which which is a lot of what built the brand in hong kong and in tribeca interesting there's there's that aspect they're not into it they're, they, it's like it's maybe a little bit older crowd or high net worth individuals uh, power players all all the clients are in their own way right but some of these guys will be like oh he's worth x x x billion that's mm-hmm. interesting you know it doesn't change our service or our you know it's just you notice more of that but that's not always the case you know it's every you know it's funny you you live in a bubble until you have a meeting a meeting every week and you see oh Tribeca had pretty much the same experience but I thought I was the only one having that experience you know things like that but it it is an uptown scene you know it's you'll get a lot more international clients at the staying at the luxury hotels you know that the mocks and the Carlisles and whatnot. Yeah. So you'll, you'll get that too. Also the UN is up there. So you get a little more of the clients that would go to the UN. Yeah. Right. Right. Would you, would you argue and and forgive me if I'm putting words into the situation, but would you argue that the connection to the armory and its assortment is potentially a little deeper because people aren't finding it through social media and such quote unquote superficial outlets. That would be the case if that was only the case. The case is the fact is once a client comes into the armory in a Hong Kong shop, Tribeca or Madison Avenue, Mm -hmm. we try to give them an authentic relationship. Yeah, an authentic experience. But I know my team, we focus on that relationship, and I know Tribeca focuses on that relationship. Mm-hmm. The, the starting point, the inception moment of uh, when they come in the door, if they haven't been on social media, I think is changed once they shop at the, either store. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Okay. What, uh, how would you describe your personal style? <laughs> so today you're wearing a, a rope hat with a tiger on it. Yeah. That's not sold at the armory. I would, I, I'm willing to bet. <laughs> yeah. A thousand percent. <laughs> this is a brand, which I love uh, called Stunton. They're pretty great. They, I love their label. It says Stunton 
damn fine goods. But I like a lot of their hats. Um, uh, you know, Monday today is my day off. So my style today is going to be, uh, as soon as I get off this pod, I'm going to go paint. So I probably will change out my shirt to a t-shirt and paint. So my style is directed by what I'm doing. Um, so I'm not definitely not the same person one day to the next. Uh, I'm not even the same person in the morning and night. Uh, just like fragrance, you know, like you like mm. maybe, maybe something more citrusy in the summer. Or you might like something a little smokier and heavier in the winter. Oh, I like it. I'm the same way with my style. Um, I think I have pretty individual style, but you know, I've just been doing my thing. You know, I just put on what I have really. I don't have a lot of casual clothing except jeans and t-shirts outside of that. There's not like, it goes from that to I'm pretty much wearing a sport jacket. (laughs) Yeah. Or Oxford or something. Yeah. 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 You know, it's interesting. I've never heard somebody kind of compare their style to fragrance and like and through your description it's almost like my beverage choice like you know in the summer i'm drinking I mean, October hits, i want a stout or a yeah hit. i'm not drinking something lemony or orangey but damn right. once that summer hits i can't wait <laughs> right right no that's fantastic what about fashion or, or menswear in general do you enjoy the most What got it's hooking me initially. So I so I, I think about the moment of when I left security and stepped into menswear was working for Etro. Mm-hmm. Being an artist, being a painter, it was a thousand percent about the color of the Etro garments, i.e. the contrast of color, the the depth of color, the you know just the how it would how different fabrics would look in the light the color was mesmerizing for me because i was kind of coming from a gray place in brooklyn to do security in the city and then to pop into an extra store and see it beautifully well lit and the art and so so i was like oh this this is cool this is creative so that's kind of what i like the creative aspect to it mostly but now as i get older you know um yeah, I, I went through different things that interest me. That was color. Then it got into construction, working for Laura Piana. Then it got into like branding and marketing and like luxury with Tom Ford. And then here I am at the Armory, a little bit of all of it. But now for me, service, like the clients you get to work with is incredible. I meet amazing people every yeah. single day, every day. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I met great people throughout my entire career. And there's not anyone you can't name that I didn't dress one way or another through something. Uh, but now I'm dealing with humans, not celebrity. I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with, you know, really interesting people. It's, it, it's cool. I think the people are a big part of why I'm still there. Yeah, for sure. I think that human connections essential. Um, what uh, is, is there any particular part, that you're you're a fan of categorically meaning you know jackets shoes or you're just a fan of all of it or you just like like what what kind of categories within the assortment do you do you find that you like most oh yeah it's an interesting question you know like my my favorite piece i've been wearing lately is something we had developed called the city hunter cool which started out as like a spanish hunting jacket like the teba jacket 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's just kind of le less formal. So it has a less formal lapel. And I just think it looks good on everyone and in almost anything. It's something I could see like a Pablo Picasso wearing, looking uh, elegant and casual at the same time. Like, I love it. I have, I have five, I think now. I had two custom made recently for this winter. So they're, <laughs> they're you know, like they're my go-to piece. So I would say that. So stepping away from the super dressy dressy, but dressing up a casual look. What, um, okay, so one of the main reasons, well, obviously, aside from our friendship of having you on the show, which, again, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time. This is, I mean, it's just, I could talk to you for hours. Um, Dude, ditto. I, I, I want to talk about your painting, like your current works of art. Um, and you obviously painted as a kid, as you mentioned, with tagging and graffiti your work now, when did you get back into painting? Was it the pandemic or had you been kind of toying with the idea pre-pandemic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is kind of how it played out for me. Yeah. I told you there was a hard stop back in high school because of a shitty teacher. Right. Uh, which at this point I'm super grateful for because um, I've been incubating, you know, Sure. Let ideas and living life through the senses and experiencing and getting wiser and you know just learning about life right mm -hmm. so that hard stop kind of let me kind of live like a working man life you know and like learn to see the world you know through different eyes um what brought me back to painting was a couple things you know my i have a four-year-old son and coloring with him was fun and i just kind of watch him color mm -hmm. and with no kind of he has no nothing other than pure let me put this color here <laughs> let me put this line here oh that's interesting how the crayon is like breaks up when i rub it hard you know he's experimenting with like a beginner's mind right and seeing art through his eyes and being proud of some of these pieces of art that he drew, but have no, you know, there's no narrative at all. Right. Absolutely like improvisation. Yeah. I, I, Mark Rothko said it best, I think. And I, I, I hate misquoting it, but it, it's something like this. Um, when you ask a child what art is, as soon as they say something other than color, you've lost them. And I see that in my son. So I think that inspired me. You know, I was coming up to my 50th birthday. I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to, because I kind of stopped playing music too. I was like, I'm going to put out an album this year, right? So I started writing songs for six months. And then slowly I started coloring and more with my son. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, shit, why do I want to write a music when what I really, all I want to do is paint. <laughs> like it hit me. Play with color. Yeah. Play with color. That's all I want to do. Uh, I have a job. I'm secure. I have a great family. I, let me do this. Six months out from my, 
50th birthday, I started um, getting serious and getting back into it and buying canvases and buying paint and brushes and just kind of like say kind of an F you to yeah. my, you know, my art teacher. Um, but also to say, oh, no, man, I, I got this. Like, I can do this. This is like, this is not requiring any effort. This is, uh, I remember hearing like to paint a masterpiece or to scribble requires the same amount of brain power. And I'm like, okay, I don't have a lot of bandwidth because I work a long day. I'm going to go <laughs> and I'm going to just try to put something beautiful on the canvas now because life is short. And I just want to make sure that if I die right now, someone who loves me could put that on a wall. Someone that oh, loves art and color. And I don't like, I had no desire. No, I just, I just don't want it all end up in the garbage can. Like probably I see great art in the trash cans all the time. Mm -hmm. And I don't want mine to be that. I want people, I'm trying to express myself through it. So, you know, when you start, when, when you hit that age of 50, uh, you start thinking of things differently. And I just like, oh, I got time. I could do this, you know. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's another great quote. I'm probably misquoting, but um, Carlos Constaneda said in the book, The Active Side of Infinity, that when man is inspired, uh, dormant forces and faculties come alive. And you become a greater man or woman than you ever dreamt possible. So for me, that that time of not painting and not releasing it was a dormant force. And now I'm inspired, i.e. in spirit. So I go and I go to the studio in spirit, in the right vibration, and I just paint. And I, I can't stop is basically what the situation is. Right. So it's an absolute expression of an outlet for you. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to create it as a habit, Wesley. So like, I, you know, I, I'm not, <laughs> social media is obviously part of my life, but it's not <laughs> like I post, I was doing, I, what my goal was to create a new habit of painting because I knew I loved it. So I would do one piece, one every day for like, I said, I figured if I could do it for 35 days straight, I'd probably create a new habit. Now I'm on a you know, probably a couple hundred days and have, you know, a hundred or so pieces that I've put all my heart and soul into, you know, and I intend to do that for the next, you know, until I die, for the next 50, 100 years, whatever it is. Right. God, God will and technology. Now, if I recall, those, those postings were called the daily abstract. Yeah. Yeah. Daily abstract one, two. And so, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't even think I named, numbered them. I just gave them a date. Right. Right. So what, is that how you classify your art as abstract? I come from the abstract. I come from the abstract. I, I, when I look at my paintings, there are kind of two categories in a way. There's absolute abstract, i.e. I have no plan when I get to the canvas. Um, I just try to I put my music on. I meditate on the bus. I come home. I give my kid a bath. I go out to the studio at the Brooklyn Army Terminal. I put my headphones on and I go at a blank canvas. Whatever comes is what's coming. I'm just in a good vibration because I know I'm lucky to be doing it. Then sometimes there'll be a narrative. Sometimes there'll be the 
I'll see something like driving through a tunnel and the lights go out and how the emergency lights look and everything mm. else is black. So I, I live an urban life. I grew up in an ur urban environment. So I have a series of like tunnels or bridges or buildings and 90, uh, actually I think all of them are based on night light, i.e. the ambient light, no natural light, but I find that absolutely beautiful sometimes and right. uh, all the time, actually all the time. Sometimes I, I'm like driving, I'm like that, that building is beautiful. Like there's all these different lives in there, like a, like a, like a beehive and like all these people are doing their thing. And I think that's beautiful. Well, one thing, not, not interrupting you, but like another thing about light is like at night you're actually relying on lights, like the actual, the, the, the lighting that's projected from a light as opposed to just sunlight, daylight, you know, ambient light that way. And I guess the interesting thing about relying on artificial light, so to speak, is that, I mean, you could argue that no two are identical, right? Like, so again, these are just, you, you, these are basically observations of color. You know, the varying, the varying colors that you're, you're actually seeing because all the colors are different. And what's really interesting with that, and you're 100% right, what's really interesting with that is we're all just getting it through our eyeballs. Yes, yes. We're getting the same thing as coming through our eyeballs. We all have rods and cones and you know lenses that are processing that on a tactile way, I guess. But then we have a brain that is the really the editor of, the, of that light that's coming through your eyes, through your life experience and sense memory. Yeah. So like I'm, my nights are going to maybe a little darker mm -hmm. than some other people because I've, what I remember as my childhood as a graffiti writer is going out at night and being a little scared, but also beautiful at moments. So like pitch black in the subway track is a little scary, right? Yeah. But then, but then you see, and you'll see that in some of my paintings, like, you know, the safety yellow and the safety orange. I use those colors because that's what I saw to like make sure I don't get hit by a train or something. Right. So like, so my nights, my blacks are black. They're not, none of them are black. They're either deep, 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 crazy blue or a little purple, a little magenta in there, but there's, it's dark. Yeah. So, I mean, and I know in photography, you talk about dynamic range, like how dark the blacks are, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. So I wonder if, if your brain's dynamic range, right? The cones in your eyes that are, that are seeing these colors, um, you just have a really, really broad dynamic range. I wonder if that's, that's part of it. That's cool. Maybe. Um, yeah. Well, how you found your studio is kind of a cool story. I know it has, you know, it kind of revolves around your birthday. Do you mind telling it? Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, you know, one of the blessings in my life and like one of the, well, what I'm most grateful for in my life is my wife and my wife saw my 50th birthday coming up and she wanted to get me something special. Uh, she saw I was obsessed <laughs> with painting. Uh, but see, I think she had an alternative motive, to be honest with you. So let me just tell you what happened. She got me, she submitted me and my artwork and my little bio to Shashama Studios, to an amazing organization here in New York. Um, 
that supports artists and gives them space for rent or you know discounted prices. It's really about developing artists. And um, Anita there's does an incredible job with that. Uh, she she presents galleries for artists, and it, it it's just probably one of the best organizations in New York for supporting artists. Anyway, uh, yeah. So my wife so, so you know submitted my stuff and got me in there. Uh, got me in this little studio at Brooklyn Army Terminal, which is like seven minutes from my house. Uh, that's a scary, crazy, amazing building. <laughs> like really <laughs> wild. You've been there. It's a pretty picture going there at night when no one's around. And the canine units are out there with their dogs and you hear helicopters fly by. It's scary. That oh, might be yeah. why some of my art looks the way it does too. But I love <laughs> getting in that room and just punching colors at the canvas and being like, nope, nope, here's a little light. Here's a little light. Here's a little light. And uh, that's how I got in from my wife. But like I said, the alternative motive, I think I was. we have a pretty nice dining room table made of this beautiful maple wood and I kept getting paint on it. I think that she was not, she'd rather pay for a studio for a year than for me to get another drop of paint on that, uh, on that table. Oh, so yeah, man. that's kind of how I landed there. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I, I'm curious as to what your answers going to be for this because I, I want to know what your feeling is or approach or, or, or difference in approach for that matter from you know your tagging and um sort of graffiti days i guess versus what you're doing now because when you do a tag as we, as we were talking about typography and i mean you there are constraints there because you still have to make the letter right like the letter has to be uh, you know arguably um legible whereas like in something in in, in some of your works now like your work now is so much more abstract. It's almost without limitation. So how's that approach different? Well, it's coming out of a different filtered mind. That mm. kid was scared and was driven by ego and um, fear. And, you know, it was a form of expressing myself and saying, I'm alive. Here I am. Mm um that didn't change <laughs> me painting now saying i'm alive here and now but it's not fearful and it's not ego driven like i'm really just trying to open up a valve and tap into um not me as the artist but let the artist just come through so i'm there's zero effort now mm -hmm. and then it was to write just DQ was, I would obsess over that and making sure it's everywhere. And now I'm just kind of doing my thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's as authentic as I'll ever be now as an artist. Um, because once I start pushing too far into the narrative, I'm, I, I might as well just pick up a camera, you know, and photograph sure. something. Yeah. Now I'm just trying to, like I said, just trying to express what I see in, you know, those, those cityscape stuff and how I feel in the abstract. I'm, you know, I'm just trying to express that. So it's a different thing. Yeah, it's different, but, but there is some, there's a through line of, you know, wanting to do something with colors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. 
Well, how's how's the the technique of what you're doing now? Or is it brushes? Is it knives? You know, scraper. Yeah, you know, I. Those yeah, called? yeah. I always forget. What yeah, the, the tools I'm using. Yeah, yeah, the the mediums I'm using. I mean, like, I use acrylic paint. I use different mediums. I.e., I use molding paste and I mix it in some of my paint if I want a flatter, rougher surface. Mm-hmm. I'll use a high gloss medium to kind of give a little contrast and texture. Uh, and as far as brushes, I kind of love big brushes, paddle brushes, well, practically painters, like you paint the house with the brushes I use, you paint houses with. Right. Um, I, those are my main tools and I use all different size brushes. Sometimes a color would need a, you know, a big long haired brush, or sometimes I'll need a short, hard brush. I, the colors dictate it all for me. You know, I try to go for that high contrast, you know, let the colors do all the work. So whatever, so I'll use my, I'll, I'll push my thumb into it if it's too thick, you know, it's very natural. It's, it's action painting in the sense of like a, a Jackson Pollock, it's action painting. It's not too thought out. Right, right. Yeah. So Rothko, Pollock, these are the inspirations maybe? Yeah. Or, or, or influences, maybe? Yeah, I mean, well, perhaps a better I can't, you know, any any artist, uh, you look at their work, they're influenced by everything that came before them. Sure. Uh, and what their eyes looked at. I looked at a lot of Rothko's and Pollock's and Warhol's and Herring's and Basquiat's and Dolly's and, you know, George O'Keefe. I looked at everything that was in the museums in New York, mm-hmm. right? So Museum of Modern Art, Guggenheim, et cetera. But if I was to put my three biggest influences that I could actually see their, their influence in my work, it is uh, Pollock, Rothko, and Giorgio O'Keefe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. How do you go about choosing your colors these days? It's, it's 100% intuitive. Um, I, I'll put one brush stroke. It might be a teal. And I'll be like, man, is that a background or a foreground? And I'll be like, mm. and I'll pick up a midnight blue kind of, I don't know, Petro and put it next to it. And it'll feel like something. I'll be like, okay, now this needs something to kind of balance that out. Let's add a hot color. Let's add pink. It's totally influenced by one stroke, the next, and the next. And sometimes I'll hang with one brush or one color for a while and work around the canvas. That's interesting. So are you going straight from like, you know, the tube to the canvas or do you find yourself mixing color on a palette prior to? Mm, so a little bit of both. I, I do both a hundred percent. I might start up in a corner, like a jigsaw puzzle. Like I tell my kid when he's working on a jigsaw, start up in the corner and see what, you know, once you have that corner piece, you could figure out, okay, what you need another straight edge next to it. So you start looking for the next piece. I usually start up in a corner. And um, that will kind of the 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 and the music plugged in will uh, the race the race is on. I'm just whatever I need to drop on that canvas. It might go from, straight from the tube. If I want a really high saturated yellow, I'm not going to mix it. I'll right from the tube to the canvas. Or I'll see a yellow and I'll need to make it a little more orange. I'll go to the glass palette and just mix a little red in there. Just start finding the next color you know looking yeah. for it and then finding it it finds me really i just kind of make sure i have a nice cup of coffee before i get there and you know <laughs> it find, it finds me really 
You know, it's interesting to hear you say that you go from the corner first because so many of your pieces have been almost kind of round and sort of circular, like in their edges and, and kind of, it's almost like physics, right? You got centrifugal forces and, and centripetal forces, center fleeing, center seeking. And, and I never know what direction your, your artwork is going, which is part of the fascination. Like, is it coming from the center or is it center seeking? So a lot of those uh, center pieces that look like uh, kind of a, um... Almost like an orb sometimes. Yeah. So for me, that's that's a certain series that I, I'm doing called Inception. It's, the, it's when the soul enters the body. Mm. So so the first moment, like, ensoulment is what it is. It's when the soul enters the body. So I there will be a center, but I will start in the corner still because I want to kind of get a, you know, it's basically like... Um, the big bang, I'll put down a heavy background before I start because working right from a white canvas, I only do that if uh, I know I want the color to be super bright white. So like mm. if I do my tunnels, I'll black out, I'll block out the white lights and then paint the background. And then it's, I paint a little backwards. Most people work light to dark. I'll work dark to light and light to dark and all over the place. But it, yeah, most of the time I am starting from the corner. That's cool. That's really cool. Well, I like like we alluded to earlier in the conversation. I I was so lucky to to witness your first show uh, there in the in the scary building. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I, by by my estimation, it was highly successful. I know all of, if not all, a, a there were quite a few pieces sold. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Which is would you classify that show as a success? Well, yeah, because it's really just supposed to be an art uh, studio opening, like a you know just a preview. Right. I didn't expect to sell anything. I don't do art to sell, but I do have a value to my art, and you know I had a few buyers interested, and I don't want to sell anything to be honest with you. And um, I put out, you know, an ask that I thought, and I want to make sure the people who are buying it would kind of value it in a way like it's not just me right dude i'm like i'm putting my love and soul into it so i found the right collectors and uh they kind of were willing to pay and you know it canvas and ink and paint and brushes cost money so i let some go and um mm -hmm. yeah it was 100 a success <laughs> thank god god willing it keeps going yeah, man. I mean, major congrats because um, luckily I saw them before they <laughs> they left the walls there. But um, when when is the next show? Is there is there an, another one planned? Well, here's the deal. I am, you know, I haven't seeked that out. I haven't thought about that all that much. Um, but you know, people have been reaching out to me. There's um, I was just received an email. If they want me to submit five of my paintings to a possible opening. So I did that. I, today I'm going to go get those framed and hopefully they make it into the show and, you know, I'll keep doing that. But mostly what I'm doing is, you know, get in painting, you know, just keep painting. Um, like, I guess like uh, Las Vegas, right? Yeah. Put it in the desert and then maybe they'll show up. I'm out there <laughs> just doing my thing and maybe they'll show up. As far as selling it and marketing it or next show, any of that, I'm just hoping that uh, I can't be ignored and just keep doing it. 
Oh, that's fantastic, man. Well, you know, just wrapping things up. Um, what, uh, so, so what are you, what else are you doing in the free time? Well, there's not a lot of free time, man. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm up at six, I'm out the door at eight. I'm home at eight 30. I'm at the studio till about one. So I see five hours. So that's, you know, five days a week. Then Sundays for my son. And, you know, we get all that time in and then, uh, Monday's back to painting all day. So not a lot of free time. <laughs> well, today being a Monday, I should let you go, but you get to the, the no, studio. This is awesome. <laughs> do you, do you, you drive to the studio though, right? I do. Or I could walk or bike ride. Walk's a little bit of a walk, but I could bike ride. Then. What are you driving? Oh, I got a, oh God, N- nothing exciting. A Toyota Highlander. Oh, Highlander. That's a great car. Actually, my brother-in-law and I were talking about Highlanders uh, yesterday. They are great. I do love it. It's a it's a good truck, but it's, you know, on, on your podcast, that's a very, that's got to be the lowest bar ever. Oh, no, get out of here. No, there's there's no low bar. Anything. I mean, transportation is transportation and it's got four wheels and it runs and you enjoy it. That's what matters. My bike probably costs more than my, uh, <laughs> my car. <laughs> That's hilarious. What kind of bike do you have? Uh, I made a custom bike a few years ago from, I don't know if you know the brand Leader. Oh, I don't know. There's a brand called Leader. It's a thick frame, fixed gear bike that I, yeah. there's a bike company in Brooklyn called uh, Brooklyn 718. Okay. They do custom bikes. And this bike is inspired by, uh, and it's embarrassing to say, Steve McQueen's Ferrari. So it's the same brown. I, you know, I dipped the chain. I dipped the cranks. I dipped the, the, <laughs> all the bolts to match the, the, the copper in the car. So it, it has a quilted um, Brooks seat and it has this really cool, like, uh, I guess, um, a holster for my U-lock, all custom made. I probably I spent more on that bike than I did on the car, but that's when I had a lot more money. <laughs> Dude, that's that sounds sick though. Like you have to send me a photo of this bike. Yeah, I'll send you a I'll send you a pic for sure. It's called the Gent. It has a little um, embossed the Gent on it. Well, yeah, it's got a plaid seat. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing, man. Yeah, yeah. Don't be embarrassed by that one iota, man. That 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 that's that sounds incredible. Um. Well, Dan, I can't thank you enough, dude. This has been amazing. Uh, it was great to see you a couple weeks ago. It's good to see you today. And I look forward to seeing you again in December. And hopefully you can uh, get the introduction to my wife. We'll come by the armory. Oh, fantastic. And uh, a double date is due. Yes. Fantastic. Dan, thank you. One quick thing. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, man. You're a great oh, dude. Man. I appreciate uh, taking this platform and allowing me uh, to talk about my art and my life. And I appreciate you. And I look forward to your visit in December, man. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. Thank you, Dan, for your time and your candor. And I'll look forward to seeing you again next month in the city. As always, big thanks goes to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks, so stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks so much for listening.